and make your very blood run cold. This is Dark Adventure Radio Theater with your host, Chester Langfield. Today's episode... H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Out of Time. A strange case of amnesia strikes down a university professor. Five years of his life vanish under a mysterious cloud. He recovers and embarks on an investigation to piece together his strange activities and nefarious associations while afflicted. His bizarre dreams collide with reality when an archaeological dig uncovers astonishing ruins in the remotest deserts of Western Australia. Finally, he confronts the ultimate terror of the universe's master race in the shadow out of time. But first, a word from our sponsor. You know, folks, a man just isn't safe anymore. Not if he has Florida-Lee cigarettes in his case. For the young ladies of the land, with their usual penetration, have discovered the excellence of this mild and soothing smoke. So that nowadays, whenever a male voice is heard to say, Have a Florida-Lee? Echo answers in a soft but prompt soprano. I'd love to. Florida-Lee, a boon for a breathless age. And now, Dark Adventure Radio Theater presents H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Out of Time. HMS Empress now embarking for Liverpool. All passengers should be aboard. Sir, another message. Addressed to Peasley, one of the passengers. It's coded as extremely urgent. Let me see it. Give me the passenger manifest. Let's see. Peasley, there he is. Get this to the purser on the double. Mr. Peasley, ship's purser. Mr. Peasley. Yes? What is it? A telegram for you, sir. I don't have my spectacles. Would you read it for me? Father. Interesting discoveries unearthed to the northeast. Team moving to excavate in that direction. I realize this contradicts your requests, but great discoveries seem inevitable. With apologies, Wingate. <sighs> Mr. Peasley, are you all right? No. Everything all right in there, mate? 
I say, is everyone okay? Good God, not the wind, that wind! Barry! I'll get the ship's purser. Wait, not Kevin. Lock the door. It's that one, stateroom 16. Sounded like there was some kind of struggle. Sounds quiet now. Yeah, well, before it was like the lunatic. That's it. Mr. Peasley, it's the ship's purser. Is everything all right? No, no, no. What do you think, Doctor? We should go in. Uh, thank you, Mr. Fife. We'll take it from here. Uh, Mr. Peasley, I've got the key. Uh, I'm going to open your door. Flip on the light. What a mess. Uh, Mr. Peasley, can you hear me? Shh, I think he's asleep. What? Shh. Mr. Peasley. Don't you see? The metal straps are gone. The trapdoor is wide open. Mr. Peasley, wake up. You're having a nightmare. You need to wake up now. <gasps> Who are you? What are you doing here? I'm Dr. Chambers, the ship's doctor. Edward Chambers. This is Mr. Wilkins, the purser. Oh. You were having a nightmare. Other passengers heard noises and were concerned. I see. I'm terribly sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. I'll let them know you're fine. I, I'm sure they'll be relieved. I'm fine. Well, aren't you? Is he? I think he'll be all right. Right, then. Well, I'll leave him with you. And not to worry. Good night, sir. I have some tablets. They'll help you sleep better. Tablets? Sleeping tablets? Yes. Thank you. Feeling better? A bit. Sometimes the motion of the sea affects people's sleep. If you don't mind, Mr. Peasley, would you pay me a visit at the ship's infirmary tomorrow? Just a routine follow-up. Certainly. Right then. I shall see you tomorrow, uh, two-ish. Two is fine. A good night, sir. <clears throat> uh, Mr. Peasley? Yes? Do you have a history of problems sleeping, nightmares, that sort of thing? You have no idea. Enter. Hello, Doctor. Have a seat. How are you feeling today, Mr. Peasley? Oh, much better, thank you. Sleep well? Mm, better, thank you. Your tablets may have helped. Marvelous things, aren't they? And how have you been feeling overall? Any troubles breathing, heart racing, poor appetite, anything like that? No, no, I'm quite all right. Headaches? Nausea? No. Good. Well then, if you have any more sleeping troubles, come and see me. Now, the person mentioned you received a telegram yesterday. Everything all right? Mr. Peasley? I told them not to go on with the dick. I begged him, warned him, all of them. I'm I'm sorry. It's out there. I found it. It was no dream. I, I, I don't understand. I saw something in the Australian desert on the night of July 17. I hope my experience was an hallucination, but it seemed so impossibly real. What did you see? If it did happen, we all must be prepared to accept notions of the cosmos and of our place in the seething vortex of time. And we must be on guard against a lurking peril which may impose monstrous and unguessable horrors. That's why I begged them to stop digging and abandon our expedition. Uh, there was an expedition? I don't imagine you know who I am. The passenger manifest lists you as Peasley, Nathaniel W.U.S.A. Nathaniel Wingate Peasley of Massachusetts. You may know of me. Do you read the British Medical Journal? Oh, of course. 
1929, an article by Dr. J.P. Lockhart Mumry described an unusual case study of amnesia. I'm afraid I don't recall that. Ah. I was the case study. I'm afraid mine is rather a long story, Dr. Chambers. We're fortunate, then. Oh, how so? It's rather a long voyage to Liverpool. I'm sure you have patience to attend to. While you are on board this vessel, you, sir, are my patient. Please, continue. Where to begin? Take it from the top, why don't you? I was a professor of political economy at Miskatonic University. My life ran smoothly and happily. I had a wife, Alice, and three children, Robert, Wingate, and Hannah. Now, you must realize, at no time had I the least interest in either occultism or abnormal psychology. Oh, yes, 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 of course. It was on Thursday, 14 May 1908. I was conducting a class, Political Economy 6. The argument is laid out in Smith's The Wealth of Nations. Yes, Mr. Tyler? So, the market is fueled by self-interest? Think of Alfred Marshall's notion that marginal utility relative to the price. I don't... Professor? Quick, somebody run for help! I, I think he's unconscious! Oh my god, look at his eyes. There's something strange happening to his people. After examining me, doctors thought it best that I be taken home to recover. Mother? Dr. Kane thought Daddy would be more comfortable here. Robert, I still say they should have kept him in the hospital overnight. Dr. Creighton's an expert, Mother. There's something strange about his breathing. Nathaniel, can you hear me? Felicitations. Dad? Oh, Nathaniel, you're awake. How are you feeling? I am of robust constitution. Dad, what are you doing with your hands, Dad? Shh, Robert. Nathaniel, it's me, Alice. Salutations, Alice. Nathaniel, do you recognize me? With certainty. Your familiarity is abundant. That, that's not Dad. Robert, hush now. That is not my father! Nathaniel, you had some kind of fit while teaching your class. Dr. Creighton said it's probably fatigue. I've told you that you've been working too hard. Yes, you have told me that I have been working too hard. Alice. Alice? And what's your name? I am called Nathaniel. Yes, that's very good. And what's your last name? Do you mean the most recent, or do you refer to my present cognomen? What? You don't know, do you? Do you know what day it is? Dies Veneris? No, it's Friday, Nathaniel. What are our children's names? I am beset with enervation. I crave slumber. Yes, you rest. I'm going to ring Dr. Creighton. Now, of course, I have no recollection of any of this. Everything I now know about myself during the years of my affliction was learned after the fact. Of course. Now this must have been very difficult on your family. No. It was. Dr. Creighton, what's happened to him? He can't remember anything. 
He can hardly use his arms and legs, even his face, his expression. It's not his face. He's clearly suffering from amnesia, deep disturbance of the brain's memory systems. Tell me, is he able to form new memories? Does he seem to be learning things? He's like a sponge, soaking up everything we can tell him. Wingate's in there now, going over arithmetic with him. Good. That may be a first step in his recovery. No, that's not all. He knows things he didn't used to know. Such as? He was talking about ancient Romans or some such in great detail. Nathaniel doesn't know anything about Rome. That is unusual, but not unheard of. He's hiding something. It's like he doesn't want me to know who he is. This kind of experience is very disorienting for the patient. No, he's a different man. That is not my husband. He may seem that way, but I assure you it's him. In many of these cases, the patient makes a full recovery. How long does it take? The human mind is a mystery, Mrs. Peasley. We just have to be patient. I'd like to look in on him before I return to the hospital. The line integral of the vector field over the curve bounding the region. Um, okay. Thanks, Dad. Feel better. Run along, Wingate. Greetings, Dr. Creighton. Wife? Nathaniel? How are you feeling today? I experience increasingly fine fettle. Nathaniel, how many fingers am I holding up? Three. Good. What color is Alice's dress? Her vestment is lovely. Mm-hmm. And what is the square root of five? 2.2360679774997896. No, that's fine. <laughs> Thank you. Who is the president of the United States? With regret, I cannot recall. It's Theodore Roosevelt! Can you squeeze my hand? Yes, that's, that's enough. Good. Well, I see your strength is returning. I'll come by and see you Monday. If you need anything, just telephone. You'll keep him going with those exercises. Can he feed himself? He does well with fruit, but I'd swear he still doesn't understand the purpose of a fork. He's just not him! It's a terrible ordeal for you, Alice. Things will get better. So the doctor was right. Clearly you did make a recovery. I did not truly look out upon the daylight of our normal world for five years, four months, and thirteen days. The amnesiac me tried to hide my condition, but when I saw that my attempts to conceal the lapse failed, I admitted it openly, and became eager for information of all sorts. It seemed that I lost interest in my proper personality once I found my amnesia accepted as a natural thing. What sort of information? My new self was eager to master certain points in history, science, art, language, and folklore, some of them tremendously abstruse and some childishly simple. Indeed, I seemed eager to absorb the speech, customs, and perspectives of the age around me, like a student from a far foreign land. As soon as I could, I haunted the college library at all hours and began to arrange for odd travels and special courses at American and European universities. Those around me noticed that I had an inexplicable command of many highly obscure sorts of knowledge. Did your family become accustomed to the new you? From the moment of my waking, my wife regarded me with extreme horror and loathing. 
vowing that I was some alien persona usurping the body of her husband. She divorced me and would never consent to see me even after my recovery. These feelings were shared by my elder son and my small daughter, neither of whom I have ever seen since. What an ordeal. I'm terribly sorry, old child. I don't blame them for their horror. The mind, voice, and facial expression of the being that awakened were not mine. You have a second son, right? Yes. Wingate, too, felt that I was a stranger, but though only eight years old, he had faith that my proper self would return. When it did, he sought me out, and the courts gave me his custody. He has since helped me with the studies to which I was driven, and today, at 35, he's a professor of psychology at Miskatonic. Did you do anything besides study during the years of your affliction? I still don't know much of my life from 1908 to 1913. What I know, I pieced together mostly from old newspapers and scientific journals. My travels involved long visits to remote and desolate places. Such as? In 1909, I spent a month in the Himalayas. And in 1911, I embarked on a camel trip into the deserts of Arabia. In 1912, I chartered a ship and sailed far into the Arctic. Why I went or what I did on these trips, I have never been able to learn. A thirst for adventure, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. I spent weeks exploring the vast limestone cavern systems of Western Virginia. But you recall none of this? Not a moment of it. And you don't remember yourself at all during this time? I wasn't myself. My secondary... And that, good Dr. Chambers, is the world of which my dreams brought me dim, scattered echoes every night. When we first met, you made reference to an expedition. Did I? Hmm. Well then. On July 10th, 1934, a visitor came to my office at the college. Enter. May I help you? Are uh, you Mr. Peasley? Yes. The one what the psychology articles was about? Yes. If you'll pardon my intrusion, sir, I'll need to speak to you. Yeah, you'll need to make an appointment. I've seen the things from your dreams. Great stone blocks with writing on them. What do you know about my dreams? After I seen the stones, I went to tell the professor at the uni about them. You know, archaeology and all that. One of them, Dr. Boyle, said he'd seen something just like what I seen, but it was in their magazine articles you write. So, Mr... Mackenzie. Robert Mackenzie. So, Mr. Mackenzie, you expect me to believe you've seen titanic stone blocks covered with hieroglyphic writing exactly like the ones I dreamed of? Yeah. Well, thank you. You're not the first prankster to read my work. Good day, sir. I know it sounds impossible. I was amazed to find the stones, let alone that some bloke dreamed something just like them. Dr. Boyle thought it was all a joke until I showed him the codex. Codex? You have photographs? Yeah, I got a lot of them. Here, looks just like your drawings, don't it? Oh. Hey, have a chair, mate. Where? I led a gold dig in the great sandy desert, Western Australia. It's about four days travel from Pilbara, if you know where that is. It was about two years ago now. I was out prospecting with one of our blackfellas. Hard rock, boss. It doesn't make sense. Emeru, try the pick over here. What the hell? Well, let's see here. 
Christ almighty, it's a huge block, Amaru. Look at this. It's curved on top. Hey, hey! Hey, come back here! For Christ's sake, will you stop? You'll run us both to death out here. That stone's evil, boss. I'm not going back. What you mean, evil? It's a rock. It's like a, a huge brick. It's from the house of the Badai. It's a bad thing, boss. What are you going on about? Great building rocks with curving writing. They are from the hut of the Badai. The giant old man who sleeps underground with his head on his arm. One day he'll awake and eat up the world. Crikey, it's just one of your old myths. Grandfather told of the enormous underground huts of great stones and tunnels that led down and down. Ages ago, horrible things happened there. Once, two warriors were losing a battle, and they ran down into one, and the Badai woke up. He roared, and the wind from his roar was so terrible, that warrior fell down dead. So what about the other one? They came back, but to his people. Whew. Soft in the head, you know? It's just a rock. I don't even see any writing on it. It's there, boss. You'll see. Will you come back to camp? No, boss. Ain't a thing in the world make me go back there. I went back. At first, I didn't see any marks. But when I looked close enough, I could make out some deeply carved lines. There were strange curves, just like what Amaru tried to describe. There must have been 30 or 40 blocks, some nearly buried in the sand, and all within a circle perhaps a quarter of a mile in diameter. I made a careful reckoning of the place with my instruments and took these photos. Australia? Dr. Ball became quite excited when I showed him the snapshots. I can see why. Mr. Peasley, I'm a mining engineer by trade and I know my geology. These blocks are so ancient, they damn near scared the pence off me. Mostly sandstone and granite, though I saw one that was a queer sort of concrete. You're certain they could not have formed naturally? Nothing natural about them. Their perfect blocks are about two by three by three with evidence of water action, as if they'd been submerged and come up again after long ages. They were made millions of years ago. Something must have made them. Yeah, I reckon they're from some undiscovered civilization. No civilizations in Australia ever built anything like this. Who else knows about this? Just you, me, Dr. Ball and Amaru. We kept it quiet, feeling you ought to be the first to hear. Great God. Dr. Boyle and I thought, because of your experience, you might want to form an expedition and make some archaeological excavations. An expedition? To find out what it is, what it means. Of course. Yes. Yes, of course. Boyle and I are prepared to help assemble a local team if you or your university can furnish the funds. Funds? Sir, I've read your articles. I understand what this means. Do you? So this, this was the expedition you spoke of. It was shockingly easy to assemble a team. Academic curiosity was completely piqued by the photos. Miskatonic provided funding. And several of my colleagues were soon in communication with Dr. Boyle. In less than a year, our expedition steamed its way to Perth. Paisley! Paisley, over here! Good to see you, mate. May I introduce Dr. E.M. Boyle, University of Western Australia. Pleased to meet you in person, Mr. Paisley. <laughs> Allow me to introduce my colleagues. Professor William Dyer, geologist. Dr. Dyer, yes. You were on your Miskatonic's Antarctic expedition in 30, no? I was. Nasty business. Well, sorry we have a better time of it here, eh? <laughs> <laughs> 
Ferdinand Ashley, Chair of the Department of Ancient History. Hey, how do you do? Tyler Freeborn, Department of Anthropology. Dr. Freeborn? And this is my son, Professor Wingate Peasley. Dr. Boyle, Mr. McKenzie? Right, everything's in order. I've got four tractors waiting for us at Pilbara. We'll take a small steamer up the river to get there. Welcome to Australia, gents. Right, this is the DeGray River. You might want to dip your toes. It's the last flowing water. We'll see for a while. Wingate, your father, is he all right? He, he seems nervous. The further we come, the more frightened he seems. Keep an eye on him, will you, lad? It was on Monday, June 3rd, that we reached our camp. Right, gentlemen, while the lads are pitching the tents, follow me up over this ridge. If the sands haven't shifted too much, we might be able to look, see some... Look! Over of... there! The blocks! Good lord! Dad, look. It's like you said. Standing! Oh, incredible! There's more over here. Good god. I swear, I've never seen anything like it. What do you think, Nathaniel? Are they the same? It's not possible. Are you sure? The carving. I've seen this. Here, have some water. I lived in buildings made of these stones. In my dreams. A month of digging revealed some 1,250 blocks in varying stages of wear and disintegration. Most of these were megaliths with curved tops and bottoms, while a few were singularly massive and curved or slanted in such a manner as to suggest use in vaulting or arches. Where did they come from? We puzzled over that. I was studying block 122b. Some of the markings looked like the symbols the Papuan Polynesians used to denote the beginning of time. Beginning of time is right. Geologically, these blocks predate life as we know it. That doesn't make any sense, Dyer. Someone or something had to make them. Well, let me put it this way. We've only uncovered a very small portion of what's happened on this planet. I think we're about to discover a whole new chapter. I, I took the plane back up today to look for those outcroppings to the northeast. Here they look. Gone. I guess the sand covered them up again. It's hard to imagine them that much wind, though. Yeah. Pass the sauce, will you, Nathaniel? Nathaniel? Dad? Not the northeast. You mustn't. I remember. What What are you talking about, Dad? Shh. I've been there. You're up late, Dr. Boyle. Smike? Ah, Fleur de Lee. Thanks, mate. Any sign of Peasley? Not yet. Last couple of nights he's left camp. Becoming a real Australian. Walkabout, eh? Uh, to reconcile one's dreams with an impossible reality. Hell of a thing. Shh. I think that's him. I'm away off to bed. Oh, good night, Robert. Is that you, Nathaniel? Evening, Dr. Boyle. Insomnia? My dreams here are nearly unbearable. Oh, I should imagine. Gone for a stroll. Yes. Which way you head out? Northeast again? There's something out there. I, I... I just can't quite remember it. It'll come to you. I think we should dig out that way. So you said. Wingate hasn't seen much out there from the aeroplane, huh? It's there. Below. Or maybe we shouldn't. On July 11th, I made another discovery which frayed my nerves. Dyer! Dyer, get up! I found something! Easily? What? What is it? 
Are you all right? A stone. A stone. A great stone. A different one. Well, what do you mean? It's not like the others. This this one was perfectly square cut with no convex or concave surface. It's a dark basaltic rock. Yes, well, that... Dad, whatever. The great race was terrified of the basaltic elder masonry. It was the... Right. It, it... Wingate, why don't you help your father back to his tent? After sunup, we'll go and have a look. The next morning, Dyer, Freeborn, Boyle, my son, and I set out to view the anomalous block, but the night's wind wholly altered the hillocks of shifting sand, and we couldn't find it. Maybe that's enough for tonight. I, I've got a sleeping tablet. No, this is the crucial, most difficult part. Why is it difficult? Because I cannot be certain of its reality. Just tell me what happened. On July 17th, shortly before 11, I set out. Evening, Mr. Peasley. Mackenzie. Out for your nightly constitutional. Can't sleep. Here, take an electric torch to keep an eye out for brown snakes. They like a night with full moon and no wind. Helps them hunt. About 3.30 a.m., a violent wind blew up, waking everyone in camp. The Three of the tents came down. Nothing serious, though. The moon's so bright, we'll have them fixed up in no time. We we had a much worse in Antarctica. That's a sinister night. Everyone accounted for. Crikey. Peasley was out on one of his night rambles. It's a bad omen. What do you mean by an omen? Just black fella folklore. Amaru, a bloke who worked for me, said these winds blew out of the great stone huts underground where terrible things happened. These winds only come from near places with these blocks. The night wore on, and the strange wind lashed at the camp, and then abruptly stopped. Still no sign of Paisley, Professor. And the wind's died down. We'll search for him once the sun comes up. Not a good night to be out there alone. Not in his shape. Well, I, I mean, clearly his nerves are on edge. He's been through a lot. But just what has he Th been through? There he is! Paisley! Good God, man. What the hell happened to you? Oh, you mean these scratches? I... I stumbled. I, Shh. I... <laughs> Daniel, come back to your tent. You should lie down. Get Wingate. Bring him to the tent. I'm quite all right, really. I, I don't need to lie down. Uh, of course. Still, some of those scrapes look a bit nasty. We should have a gander. Dad, are you all right? You were gone all night. Uh, never better. I walked and walked until I became a bit fatigued, so I, I lay down for just a quick nap when the winds woke me up. My nerves were on edge and I fled in a, a bit of a panic. You know how easy it is to trip over those stones, half buried in the sand. I must have scraped myself. Mm. You're gone all night, Dad. Your pulse is racing, Nathaniel. Is it? Well, I hiked quite some distance. Uh, of course. You know, while I've got the three of you here, I've been thinking, let's not go to the northeast. I don't think we're likely to find much out there. I've looked and looked, and really, there's not much to see. And we've found plenty of specimens here. Really, we've succeeded quite well. Our work here's really all but done. Northeast, well, there's hardly any blocks out there. Our funding will dry up, and what will we have to show for it? Besides, the miners don't like it. Think it's a bad, bad luck out that way. Not a good place to dig full of snakes, too. Dad? D Nathaniel, you should get some fluid in you. Professor Dyer and I will get you some tea. Wingate, keep your father company. I'm no psychologist, but I'd say he's off his rocker. The man just went through some kind of intense psychological trauma. Well, what do we do? Try to keep him calm. See if he recovers. Morning, lads. Beautiful day. Who wants some coffee? Wingate, 
can't stay here. I have to go home. I need you to fly me to Perth. Perth? That's a thousand miles. I can't stay here. I need to go. I need to go soon. All right, Dad. I'll take you. But what we're doing here is important. I can't just abandon it. Well, then fly me to Perth. I'll book a ship home myself. You can do what you please. Are you sure? Absolutely. One more thing. You'll have to take the plane and scout to the northeast. Dad, the, the main dig is to the west. I promised Mackenzie that you I... You need to do this for me. Fly and tell me what you see. Sure, Dad. I'll have a look. Humoring me, my son made the survey. Flying over all the terrain my walk could possibly have covered. Nothing of what I had found remained in sight. Shifting sand wiped out every trace. Wingate flew me to Perth on July 20th, but decided to return to the expedition. He stayed with me until the 25th, when I boarded your fine vessel. What happened that night in the desert? I hiked northeastward. Here and there I saw those primal cyclopean blocks, and yet I plodded on as if to some eldritch rendezvous. Something was fumbling and rattling at the latch of my recollection, while another unknown force sought to keep the portal barred. At moments, I fancied I saw those conical horrors moving about, and I feared to look down lest I find myself one with them in aspect. Yet all the while I saw the sand-covered blocks as well as the rooms and corridors. I was awake and dreaming at the same time. Eventually I spied a heap of blocks. It was the largest group in one place that I had seen so far, a, a low, irregularly round mass of megaliths and smaller fragments some forty feet across and from two to eight feet high. For the first time in this eon-shaken waste, I had come upon masonry in its original position. I clambered over the heap. This was once a colossal corridor, thirty feet tall. How did I know that this level should have been far underground? How did I know that there would be one of those horrible metal-banded trapdoors at the very bottom, four levels down? Go on. As if in the clutch of some compelling fate, and with the strength of a man possessed, I wrenched aside one titan fragment and then another. A black rift began to yawn, and when I had pushed away every fragment small enough to budge, an aperture opened large enough to admit me. I drew out my torch and cast a beam into the opening. Below me was a chaos of tumbled masonry, sloping roughly down, evidently the result of some bygone collapse from above. You didn't. It seems like the utter apex of insanity. Perhaps it was. Yet I commenced a mad scramble down the sinister incline below. Walls of crumbling stonework loomed dimly under the direct beams of my torch. Ahead, however, was only unbroken darkness. Physical sensation was dead. And even fear remained as a wraith-like, inactive gargoyle leering impotently at me. I reached a level floor strewn with fallen blocks. On either side, perhaps thirty feet apart, rose massive walls, exactly what I had seen in countless dreams of the Elder World. I cast the torchlight slowly and carefully over worn remnants of carving. But the carvings... They were the strange designs I'd dreamed of for more than a score of years. Perhaps they only seemed familiar. No. The ancient corridor in which I stood was the original of something I knew in sleep as intimately as I knew my own house in Arkham. I knew this place. Would the way to the central archives still be open? The awesome records that once lay cased in those rectangular vaults of rustless metal? 
There reposed the whole history, past and future, of the cosmic space-time continuum, written by captive minds from every orb and every age in the solar system. I thought of the locked metal shells and of the curious knob twistings needed to open each one. It was then that madness took me utterly. An instant later and I was leaping and stumbling over the rocky debris toward the well-remembered incline to the depths below. Nathaniel, it was just an especially vivid dream. I hope so, yes. Some demonic dream or illusion born of delirium. The ultimate apex of nightmare made worse by the blasphemous tug of pseudo-memory. Onward through the blackness of the abyss I leapt, plunged and staggered, often falling and bruising myself, once nearly shattering my torch. I found the downward incline and descended to a gaping, ragged chasm where the stonework had fallen through, revealing incalculable inky depths beneath. I leapt across the void and pressed on. Everything was where I knew it would be as I pressed on to the central archives. I felt a curious surge of weakness as I steered my course through the crypt of one of those great windowless ruined towers of alien basalt masonry. This primal vault was round and fully two hundred feet across. The floor here was free from anything but dust and sand, and I could see the apertures leading upward and downward. In the dreams, the downward aperture had been tightly sealed and nervously guarded. Now it lay open black and yawning, and giving forth a current of cool, damp air. It was sheer madness that impelled and guided me. Nathaniel, perhaps we should stop. I came to a low, circular crypt with arches opening off on every side. This was my fated destination, this vast, earth-protected pile built with supernal skill and strength to last as long as the earth itself. On every hand, the great hieroglyphed metal shelf doors loomed monstrously. I raced through unending tangles of aisles and corridors. What were you looking for? I had no idea. But some force of evil potency pulled at my dazed will so that I felt I was not running at random. I wanted to unlock something. Eventually, I reached the lowest level and struck off to the right of the incline. For some reason, I tried to soften my steps. I recalled the presence there of one of the metal-barred trapdoors. Soon, I found it yawning widely open. Something about the dust on the level floor troubled me. In the light of my torch, it seemed as if that dust were not as even as it ought to be. There were places where it looked thinner, as if it had been disturbed not many months before. When I brought the torchlight close, I saw lines of impressions, tracks of a sort, each slightly over a foot square and consisting of five nearly circular three-inch prints. They appeared to lead in two directions, as if something had gone somewhere and returned. You should have run right then. I should have. But before I knew it, I was past the heap of fallen cases and running on tiptoe through aisles of unbroken dust toward a point which I seemed to know horribly well. Would the shelf be reachable by a human body? Would the lock be undamaged and workable? And what would I do? What dare I do with what I both hoped and feared to find. Soon, I was standing still, staring at a row of shelves. They were in a state of almost perfect preservation. I put the torch in my mouth and began to climb. I used both the swinging door and the edge of the aperture itself in my ascent and managed to avoid any loud creaking. Balanced on the upper edge of the door and leaning far to my right, I could just reach the lock I sought.
My fingers were clumsy at first, but the memory rhythm was strong in them. After less than five minutes of trying, there came a click, whose familiarity was all the more startling because I had not consciously anticipated it. In another instant, the metal door was slowly swinging open. Just within reach of my right hand was a case covered in the hieroglyphs. I dislodged it amidst a shower of gritty flakes. I shifted it to my back and let the hook catch hold of my collar. I awkwardly clambered down to the dusty floor. Kneeling in the dust, I swung the case around and rested it in front of me. My hands shook. I do not know how long it was before I dared to lift that metal cover. I shut off the torch to save the battery. Then, in the dark, I lifted the cover without turning on the light. Last of all, I flashed the torch upon the exposed page, stealing myself in advance to suppress any sound no matter what I should find. And was it... I looked for an instant, and then collapsed. What I dreaded and expected was there. Either I was dreaming, or time and space had become a mockery. Dreaming? I must be dreaming. But I would test the horror by carrying this thing back and showing it to my son. Torch in hand, an ominous case under one arm, I tiptoed in silent panic past the abyss and those lurking suggestions of prints. I lessened my precautions as I climbed up the inclines, but I dreaded having to cross through the black basalt crypt. It was harder and harder to be quiet as I stumbled among debris and fragments. And then I came to the mound of debris through which I would have to squeeze. In my descent, I had made some noise, and I now dreaded sound above all things. I clambered up the barrier as best I could and pushed the case through the opening ahead of me. As I tried to grasp the case again, it fell some distance ahead of me down the slope of the debris, making a disturbing clatter and arousing echoes which sent me into a cold perspiration. I lunged for it at once and regained it without further noise, but... A moment afterward, God, no. I reached the mountain of debris which towered into blackness beyond the caved-in roof and bruised and cut myself repeatedly scrambling up its steep slope of jagged blocks. Just as I blindly crossed the summit, Plunged ahead, tripping and scrambling. Then, just as I approached the basalt crypt, this time there was no doubt about it. And what was worse, the whistling came from a point not behind, but ahead of me. Like a noose or lasso thrown around me, it pulled me back. I clattered over a great barrier of blocks and was again in the structure that led to the surface. It's just a dream. I will wake up. I'm in camp. I'm home in Arkham. I began to mount the incline until I reached the four-foot chasm across the tunnel floor. Descending the leap had been easy. But could I clear the gap when going uphill? Hampered by fright, exhaustion, the metal case, and the tug of that demon wind? My torch grew feeble. The chill blasts of wind and the nauseous whistling shrieks behind me were for the moment like a merciful opiate. 
dulling my imagination to the horror of the yawning gulf ahead. And then I became aware of the added blasts and whistling in front of me, surging up through the cleft. Sanity departed. I leapt with every ounce of strength I possessed and was instantly engulfed in a pandemoniac vortex of loathsome sound and utter, materially tangible blackness. You fell? What happened? This was... is the end of my experience. Dream, madness, and memory merged wildly together in a series of fantastic, fragmentary delusions. I fell through incalculable leagues of sentient darkness. Dormant, rudimentary senses seemed to awaken me, telling of pits and voids peopled by floating horrors and leading to crags and oceans and cities of windowless basalt towers upon which no light ever shone. Secrets of the primal planet flashed through my brain, and there were known to me things which not even the wildest of my former dreams had ever suggested. Cold fingers of damp vapor clutched and picked at me. There were visions of the cyclopean city of my dreams. I was in my conical, non-human body again and mingled with crowds of the great race. Then, superimposed upon these pictures were frightful flashes of a non-visual consciousness involving desperate struggles, arriving free from clutching tentacles of whistling wind, an insane bat-like flight through half-solid air, a feverish burrowing through the cyclone-whipped dark, and a wild stumbling and scrambling over fallen masonry. Then, climbing and crawling into a blaze of moonlight through a jumble of debris which slid and collapsed after me, Moonlight marked my return to the waking world. I clawed through the sands, and around me shrieked such a tumult of wind as I had never known. My clothing was in rags, my whole body was a mass of bruises and scratches. My flashlight was gone. So too was the metal case. Raising my head, I looked behind me and saw only the sterile sands of the desert. I lurched to my feet and began to stagger southwestward toward the camp. What, in truth, had happened to me? If that abyss was real, then the great race was real. Had I been drawn back a hundred and fifty million years in those dark, baffling days of my amnesia? Had my body been the vehicle of an alien consciousness from Paleogene gulfs of time? Had I, as the captive mind of those shambling horrors known that accursed city of stone in its primordial heyday, had I talked with minds from corners of time and space, and written the annals of my own world for those titan archives? And were those others, those elder things of the mad winds and demon pipings, in truth a lingering, lurking menace waiting in the dark? Nathaniel, you know this I was do just not a... know! I do not know! If it was real, there is no hope. Then there lies upon this world of man a mocking and incredible shadow out of time. But, mercifully, there is no proof. I did not bring back the metal case. The buried city has not been found. If the laws of the universe are kind, it will never be found. The awful truth behind my tortured years of dreaming hinges absolutely upon the actuality of what I thought I saw in those buried ruins. 
I can hardly bring myself to speak that crucial revelation. Though doubtless, Dr. Chambers, you can guess. The book. That book you found. No eye had seen. No hand had touched that book since the advent of man to this planet. And yet, when I flashed my torch upon it in that frightful abyss, I saw that the letters on those pages were not nameless hieroglyphs of Earth's youth, not the fantastical scrawl of some alien race. They were the letters of our familiar alphabet, spelling out the words of the English language in my own handwriting. You've been listening to H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Out of Time, brought to you by our sponsor, Lord Lee. The cigarette made from the finest tobaccos. Lord Lee, a boon for a breathless age. Until next week, this is Chester Langfield reminding you to never go anywhere alone. If it looks bad, don't look, and save the last bullet for yourself. The Shadow Out of Time was adapted for radio and produced by Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman. Original music by Troy Sterling Neese. The Dark Adventure Ensemble featured Leslie Baldwin, Aiden Branny, Sean Branny, Casey Camp, Mark Colson, Dan Conroy, Steve Coons, Matt Foyer, McCarran Kelly, Andrew Lehman, Anna Lerbon, Barry Lynch, John McKenna, Josh Temke, and Noah Wagner. Tune in next week for The Wailing Octopus, a Zeke Ford adventure. Dark Adventure Radio Theater is a production of the HPLHS Broadcasting Group, a subsidiary of HPLHS Incorporated, copyright 1931, plus 77.